we're covering lots of chapters uh, as we're finishing up in Genesis this afternoon. So if you have a Bible there, please uh, keep it open uh, in front of you. Um, but because it's God's word, why don't we pray again and ask him for help as we look at it. Uh, loving Father, we thank you for this first book of the Bible. Uh, and we thank you, Lord, that even right from the beginning, uh, you had a plan to restore uh, humanity. Um, and we thank you for while we see the reality of sin and the mess and brokenness in this book, uh, we also see your promises and you working to keep them. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray that as we finish up in Genesis this afternoon, you, you would continue using it in our lives. Uh, and we particularly pray that you be with us now. Amen. Uh, a, a lawyer uh, bought himself a very rare and valuable box of cigars, and he insured them. Uh, the insurance cover included damage by fire, uh, and within a month, uh, he'd smoked all of the cigars. He then made an insurance claim. Uh, his claim form read something like this, the cigars were lost in a series of small fires. As you might expect, the insurance company knocked back that claim. Uh, so the lawyer sued them. Uh, and while the judge agreed with the insurance company that the claim was, well, laughable, he found that the lawyer held a policy which ensured the cigars against fire without defining what is unacceptable fire. And so the judge ruled that the insurance company had to pay the claim. Instead of appealing, the insurance company accepted the ruling and they paid 15 grand to the lawyer for the loss of his cigars in the fires. Uh, did I mention this happened in America, apparently? Uh, the story doesn't end there, though. Uh, after the, the lawyer cashed the insurance check, he was arrested on 24 counts of arson. Uh, the insurance company used the lawyer's own insurance claim and his evidence in court to, to prove that he intentionally lit the fires. And he was imprisoned for 24 months and charged $24,000. We love those kinds of stories, don't we? Uh, because the lawyer gets what he deserves, uh, for sure. But we also, we also love a story that's got a happy ending when things finally work out in the end. And as we finish up in, in this first and formative book of the Bible, Genesis, we, we might be wondering if things turn out in the end, and of course they do, but not because the Bible writer likes a happy ending. Things work out finally in the end, despite those jealous brothers, despite the false accusations of Potiphar's wife, despite world powers like Egypt, despite natural tragedies like famine and infertility, even despite ingrained human traditions like favouring the firstborn son, Things work out in the end. Why? Because God is intent on saving the world. 
And that's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Despite every effort to undo God's plan for his creation, God will ensure things work out right in the end. God's big plan of salvation will not be broken. As Joseph says to his brothers in that key verse, chapter 50, verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Anyway, if your Bible's there, we're beginning in chapter 46. And the famine, it causes Jacob's family to, to move to Egypt where Joseph can actually look after them. But that's problematic because God had called Jacob to move back to, to Canaan, the promised land. Is there a risk that by going to, to Egypt, the family may miss out on the, the promises that were made to Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob? Now, I think this is why God shows up to meet with Jacob on his way to Egypt. Chapter 46, verse 3 and 4, we read, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again. God shows up to reassure Jacob that going to Egypt will, will not mean the end of God's promises to his people. And, and there's that great list of Jacob's family that follows in chapter 46, verse 8 to 25. It's easy to kind of get tangled up in the list of names, isn't it? But it shows that God's promises are gradually coming true. While they're a long way away from being that great nation, they're slowly growing. God's people now number 70. After years of thinking that his son was dead, Jacob is finally reunited with Joseph. Just look with me at chapter 46, verse 29. We read, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. Jacob's name is changed to Israel and it's used interchangeably. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. It's a touching scene, isn't it? The two reunited after all of those years. And for Jacob in verse 30, it provides closure. He says, now I'm ready to die since I've seen for myself that you are still alive. So they're in Egypt. What's life in Egypt going to look like? Well, chapter 47, verse 6, they're given great jobs. Chapter 47, verse 11, they're given the best land. Chapter 47, verse 12, they're given plenty of food. And it's really interesting that when Jacob meets mighty Pharaoh, it's not Pharaoh who blesses Jacob, but it's Jacob who blesses Pharaoh. You see this in verse 7 and verse 10 of chapter 
47, a reminder that the future, the future of God's people doesn't rely on the Egyptian empire, but on God's faithfulness to his promises. In actual fact, that the Joseph story, it's all about the Egyptian empire's reliance upon God. God doesn't just rescue his own people. God rescues Egypt and other people who go to Egypt for food. We see that in chapter 47, verse 13 to 26. Under Joseph's leadership, Egypt becomes even richer and even more powerful. Joseph's leadership is pretty interesting. He takes advantage of the famine for Egypt's benefit. When people run out of money to buy food, Joseph says, well, you can sell your livestock. And when they run out of livestock, people sell their land and themselves into slavery. Just look at chapter 47, verse 20. We read, so Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's and Joseph reduced the people to servitude. He doesn't come across as particularly compassionate, does he? He seems more interested in power than in caring for the poor. We might think, well, mate, you were sold into slavery yourself. Surely you should show some kindness to the poor. And when we get to the book of Exodus, the next book along in the Bible, which comes straight after Genesis, though uh, uh, hundreds of years later, it will be Joseph's people who end up as slaves in Egypt. But for now, the future of God's people is looking good. Chapter 47, verse 27 says, Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen, they acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. That verse says that God's plans for his people are beginning to be fulfilled. Maybe you notice the creation language. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 28, God says to the first humans, be fruitful and increase in number. Creation language like fruitful and increase, it's deliberately used because God's plan of salvation isn't an escape from creation, but it's a, it's a recreation. God hasn't written off this broken and messed up world. He remains committed. God is so committed to his creation that he ultimately dies to save it to save us. Anyway, Jacob lives 17 more years in Egypt. His time is drawing to a close in chapter 47, 28 to 49, 33. And you could say, as you track his life, well, he finishes well. He's finishing well. He wants to be buried, not in Egypt, but in the land of promise. And he wants to leave a legacy for his children and his grandchildren. Even though God's people enjoy uh, 
you know, the prosperity and the, the privilege and power of Egypt, Jacob doesn't put his hopes in Egypt. His hope for the future rests totally in God's promise. That's why he makes his kids promise to bury him in the old country, the, the promised land, a reminder that that is where their future lies and not in Egypt. It's a little like us today as we live in prosperous Australia. We think, well, no, our, our future rests in heaven. That's our home. And Jacob, he wants to leave a legacy for, for his children and grandchildren. He, he does this in Genesis 48 and, and 49. He begins by blessing Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. This is, this is not about what Jacob can personally do to bless his grandsons, but his blessing relies on God's promise. If your Bible's there, chapter 48, verse 3 and 4. He says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. And when he blesses the two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob places his right hand on the younger son instead of the older. Joseph's not happy, but Jacob insists the younger son receives the greater blessing because that's how God works again and again, where younger sons like Jacob and Joseph are blessed ahead of older sons. It's a bit upside down in their culture. And Jacob finishes in Genesis 49 with that, a prophecy about each of the 12 sons. And the focus again is on God's blessing and not whether they'll make it in the world. Oh, have you thought much about your legacy? I mean, some of you are too young, I suppose, to be thinking about your legacy uh, but when you're older, like I am, uh, the, the legacy that you're passing on to, to your kids uh, and the legacy you may be passing on, you know, it's your money, your work ethic, your love for a particular sporting team or, or your bad temper. But are you passing on a legacy with eternal significance? Maybe you haven't thought much about it. There's... Um, the story in the 1998 Reader's Digest about that couple who took early retirement. He was 59, she was 51. They lived in Florida where they cruised on their 30-foot trawler and played softball and collected shells. John Piper, a famous American preacher, he made this story famous. When he read it, he initially thought it was a joke. And he imagined this couple saying to Jesus on that final day, look at my shells, Lord. Piper concludes that is a tragedy. People are spending billions to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. 
And we might want to push back on Piper a little bit and say, well, there's something wonderful about collecting the odd shell or two. God made them to be enjoyed. But to pass on a legacy with eternal significance, you have to live a life with eternal significance. If you're too busy or lazy to put your trust in Jesus and his kingdom, to have that at the centre of your life. Now, maybe telling yourself, well, uh, when life changes, then Jesus will be at the centre. Well, chances are you never will. We're to live now, aren't we, the way we want to finish. Uh, we might be able to give our kids the best education, great toys, their own, you know, whatever. But those things will be as useful as that couple's seashells on the day of judgment if they're not right with God. We, we should pass on a legacy of eternal significance like Jacob does here. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I find that thought challenging. Once Jacob dies, the future of Joseph's brothers seems a little shaky in chapter 50, verse 15. We read, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, that they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Dad is off the scene. Joseph's brothers wonder, is it payback time? So they plead for forgiveness. They're not sure if their apologies are going to be enough. And so in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 50, they just tell Joseph that Jacob himself asked Joseph to forgive them. And when Joseph gets their message, he weeps. In chapter 50, verse 18... The brothers, they come to Joseph and they throw themselves at his feet and they plead, we are your slaves. We're again reminded of Joseph's dreams back in chapter 37 where the older brothers bow down to their little brother. And Joseph clearly forgives them. He tells them twice to not be afraid in verse 19 and verse 21, that there's no need to be afraid because Joseph has forgiven them. There's no need to be afraid because there'll be no payback. A number of you will have, uh, be familiar with the Corrie Ten Boom uh, story and maybe read The Hiding Place. Or, uh, Corrie Ten Boom was imprisoned by Nazis during World War II. And, and there's, a, there's a whole story that goes with that. But while in prison, Corrie's sister Betsy died. Years later, 1947, after the war, Corrie was speaking in Germany about God's forgiveness. And she'd just, she'd just finished speaking when she saw someone that she thought that she knew. Corrie said, one moment I saw an overcoat and the, the brown hat the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back in a rush. 
the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. The place was Ravensbrook. And the man who was making his way forward had been a guard and one of the most cruel. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, he said. How good it is to know, as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I said, Corrie, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocket rather than take the hand. He would not remember me, of course, said Corrie, but I remembered him. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. He said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But, but since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I... I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, said, Corrie, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for asking? It could have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but but to me it seemed hours. As I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had to do, I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has prior condition that, that we forgive those who have injured us. And still I stood there with the, the coldness clutching my heart, But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I I, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so willingly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me and as I did, an an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. Corrie ten Boom could only forgive because she saw things from God's perspective. That she too was a forgiven sinner and because Jesus gave her the power to forgive. Joseph can only forgive his brothers because he sees things from God's perspective too. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done, the saving of many lives. That's the Joseph story in a nutshell, isn't it? It's also the story of God's plan of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the cross, 
Human beings unleash political and religious power to destroy God's son. But in the end, their attempts were the very means by which we're saved. What they intended for harm, God intended for good to bring about the salvation of the world. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your sovereignty you can even use evil to accomplish your good. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful foundational truth that we see in Genesis, that while we live in this broken and messy world, a world subject to sin, that you can use even this to accomplish your plan of salvation. Lord, we thank you that we can just see this in the very first book of the Bible. And we thank you for the way that it finds its fulfilment in Jesus that as they hurled their insults at him, as they nailed him to that cross. You were making way for our sin to be dealt with. That you were winning victory over death and the devil. Lord God, we praise you for this. And we pray that when we're feeling the down in life, that you would help us remember that your promises are still sure, that you are reliable, that one day Jesus will return to take us to be with you forever. Lord, please help us understand, help us believe these truths. Help us rest in your care. And we pray, Lord, that as we live lives centred on our King Jesus, that each one of us would leave a legacy for those who follow, for our kids, for our friends. We pray, Lord, that as a community, our lives would point others to Christ. And we pray all this in his great name. Amen. Might invite our music.